Uh, Derek Black was a name that I had actually never heard before, um, but based on how I heard about him, it was uh, a name that I probably should have known. He sounded very infamous. I first heard him speak uh, during a radio interview, and more recently I decided to do a little bit more reading about him, and I found a great article by the Washington Post that kind of chronicles this really amazing journey that he went through and some of the characters around him in that journey. So, <clears throat> what made Derek... Uh, so infamous. Well, Derek's father, Don Black, is actually one of the leading voices and leaders in the white supremacist movement. And he created and actually runs one of the most famous uh, websites in that movement, which has made the headlines numerous times and not for good reasons. Um, he was also a leader in the KKK in the 1980s. And in fact, uh, Derek's mother, uh, was at one point married to the head of the KKK and uh, is, became Derek's, uh, that, that man, David Duke, became Derek's godfather. So Derek, by his own account in this interview, really had been indoctrinated in racism and hatred from an early age and actually by some of the biggest names within that movement. Um, he was not just indoctrinated, he was also shouldered with the legacy of this movement because of who his father was. And so he was very eager to make his father proud and to stand behind those ideologies. He made serious moves uh, around that agenda on a national scale. He actually ran for a public office and won. Um, and he put a lot of energy into trying to catalyze that movement from a political perspective. And that was all by the age of 19. In fact, at a conference of leading white supremacists, before a speech that he was going to give, Derek was introduced as the leading light of our movement by the event organizer. His own belief was that white people were superior to all other races and that specifically Jewish people were in on some kind of conspiracy to slowly destroy and kill white people. He believed in trying to get people who were not white out of the country and essentially wanted to make a white ethno state in America. And, and he was very deeply committed to that cause, even from a young age. But a really uh, weird and kind of interesting thing happened. He wanted to study medieval history, and so he decided to apply to the New College of Florida, which is a liberal arts college. And, uh, you know, despite its immensely left-leaning culture, that's where he ended up for school. And when he got settled at school, he realized pretty quickly that if he was overt with his beliefs, that he'd get ostracized. And uh, so he kind of quietly went about his day-to-day -day and continued to work in politics and continued to, to help his dad. Um, but he really tried to fly under the radar. Um, he would phone into his family's radio show, uh, which they had, and he would tell friends he was just making calls back home. But somehow, despite his efforts to remain initially invisible, um, another student discovered who Derek was and actually outed him on the school's website by posting a forum post essentially explaining who Derek was and explaining what he was up to and basically asking the question, how did this person end up at our school? So the response from the students was naturally not happy, extremely negative. Some students posted comments wishing him death and wish wishing his parents death. Uh, some students would flip him off in the quad. Uh, old friends sent him emails saying, we feel so betrayed, you hid who you were from us. And eventually he moved off campus and essentially opted out of social life 
and focused solely on school and this ideology that he had committed himself to. But his presence at the university brought a really interesting sort of conundrum to the community where they had to ask the question, what do we do about Derek? How do we handle having him here at our school? We're not happy about this. His ideology is evil and racist. How are we going to respond as a community? So some, as I mentioned, felt the best response was to send him hateful messages. Others felt like the best response was really just to keep tabs on him and kind of publicly out him. Others even posited that he was actually trying to escape from a life, you know, in the white power movement that maybe he didn't want, maybe he was just born into it. And so the suggestion was, we should just leave him alone. But either way, there was kind of a real deadlock on how his fellow students were to respond to him, and it really shook the community at the school. And uh, basically, Derek was left alone to continue on this path that he had been on. But a really um, pretty incredible and amazing thing happened. One of his classmates, or in the class, Matthew Stevenson, who happened to be the only Orthodox Jewish person on campus, would host weekly Shabbat dinners on Fridays. And he decided to invite Derek to one of his Shabbat dinners. So the Washington Post article that I, that I was reading said this, Matthew decided his best chance to affect Derek's thinking was not to ignore him or confront him, but simply to include him. Maybe he'd never spent time with a Jewish person before, Matthew remembered thinking. It was the only social invitation Derek had received since returning to campus after his outing, so he agreed to go. The Shabbat meals had sometimes included eight or ten students, but this time only a few showed up. Let's try to treat him like anyone else, Matthew remembered instructing them. So these dinners actually became a really regular thing for Derek. He was completely left out, outside. He had become a pariah. And, uh, you know, they began to meet every Friday and have these conversations. And, and at first they were, like, about grammar and history and things that were kind of like table conversation. But eventually Matthew even began to press on Derek about his views. And he actually began to share some of his views, as misguided as they, as they were. He began to share what he believed. And eventually, surprisingly, real friendships or relationships began to blossom out of this Shabbat dinner. And there was space to discuss and, and share. And real dialogues actually began to emerge around a lot of the subjects and concepts where Derek held these really terrible views and extremist views. And his friends, they were not silent pushovers either. They actually spent time and energy really wrestling with him lovingly about his beliefs and pushing back on essentially how wrong he was. And for every, you know, 12 IQ studies that Derek would pull out about sort of racial superiority in white people, they would actually pull out 150 better, <laughs> better researched IQ studies to disprove the 12. And they really began to break down some of the views that he had. He no longer sat in this kind of isolated bubble at home with his parents and with all these famous people in the white power movement. He actually had to face real humans and he actually had to hear their stories and lives that he just could no longer ignore. This started to change Derek's heart in some really deep and personal ways, and he actually really began to question his beliefs. And that was not an overnight thing. It actually took years of these Shabbat dinners and conversations. But Derek, who was once so staunch in his racist views, couldn't reconcile what he believed with the reality of the love and the inclusion that he was experiencing and the friendships that he had experienced through these people. And eventually, in a move that shocked uh, people on both sides of the issue of white supremacy in America, Derek actually publicly disavowed his white supremacist beliefs in a letter which was posted publicly on the internet by the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
And now, in recent years, Derek does interviews where he talks about his time in that movement. He really wants to educate people about the dangers of this ideology. Um, he's really a critical voice, actually, in understanding, like, what is this thing all about, you know, and how serious and how dangerous this is. In the first interview that I heard with him, he actually cited those Shabbat dinners specifically as a huge part of how he then began to step away from his previous life. And the strangers that he met at this dinner soon became friends and eventually started to like actually really care what they thought. And he actually said it was because of the immense patience and the immense love that these friends showed him that he was able to step away. And through moving towards Derek and not away from him, Matt Stevenson, this the only Orthodox Jewish student on the campus, was making actually a larger impact and change in Derek's life than all the death threats or the outings or the hateful messages. And the irony is that actually Matt had way more to lose by reaching out to him and was actually putting himself in way more danger by doing so than probably anybody else on campus based on Derek's beliefs. And something about the proximity of that relationship coupled with a compassionate approach opened up a pathway that, you know, although was not by any means immediate, it would eventually help set Derek free from something really truly evil and oppressive. And after hearing Derek's story for the first time, um, I had this thought roll through my head, and it was, it was, what if Matthew Stevenson had never invited Derek to that Shabbat dinner? Like, what would happen? Would there be that critical voice in trying to understand these issues? So I'd like to go back and read our reading from Acts real quick. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias literally hears Jesus command him to go to Saul and to cure his blindness. And his only response is, Lord, this guy is really bad. Don't you know who this guy is? It's like, there's a little bit of like, are you sure he really deserves to get, <laughs> to get his sight restored? And all he can see understandably and realistically of Saul are all of Saul's evil deeds, the persecutions, the imprisonments, the killings. So when Jesus commands him to go and to pray for Paul, he kind of starts to drag his feet a little bit. And as the readers, we can see the whole story. We're here 2,000 years later. We, we know Paul's amazing conversion and turning away, his amazing repentance. This is the guy that started out imprisoning and killing people. And then later on in his life, he writes in 1 Corinthians that anything you do without love ultimately means nothing. And that is a far cry from the zealot who wants to kill Christians. But in that moment, in that moment Ananias can really only see as far as the calendar drops. You wouldn't have been able to look at Saul of Tarsus with human eyes and make any kind of prediction that he would then write amazing theological letters to the church or grow churches. And it's only natural to put up defenses, to list someone as radioactive if they have, in fact, been radioactive. Much like with Derek Black, people either outright express their frustration or hatred for Derek, or in the case of that first Shabbat dinner uh, he attended, you know, some people just pieced out entirely and, and didn't show up. And that is a really hard 
space to be in. I don't, I don't want to undermine the severity of those issues or the severity of that transaction, that social transaction. But this is also the struggle that we see Ananias having in the Acts reading. God is commanding Ananias to be an instrument of healing against an enemy to bring peace to Saul. And Ananias' judgment of Saul is actually accurate. He was doing evil things. He was committing acts against the church in Jerusalem. And if I were Ananias, I would probably have a lot of fear and concern. You know, if I go and pray for this guy, you know, will he remain the same? Will he just regain his sight? And will he turn around and just imprison me? Yet what Ananias was called to is the same courage to love that we are called to have here and now for our enemies. And this is the radical love that God has for us and we in turn need to have for others. If the creator of the universe, who can see every nook and cranny of our hearts and minds and knows us better than anyone else, in spite of seeing our whole selves, still will have mercy and compassion for us, then what do we stand on to say otherwise to extending that grace and compassion to other people? And as much as I would like to think that I could hang and make that social leap to invite someone like Derek Black or Saul of Tarsus or whomever over for dinner, if I'm honest, how often do we let our fear or our judgment cloud our vision for what God can do in the midst of brokenness and the sin of the human heart? It's one thing to be afraid, but it's another to doubt that through God all things are possible. A dear friend of mine once explained to me uh, that he just, for various reasons, he had, he had found himself um, sort of disowned by his grandfather. And in his life, that was, a, that was a big deal. His grandfather was kind of the patriarch of the family. But whatever falling out had happened had left my friend rejected by his grandfather. And my friend went on to say that, you know, he basically had to say this prayer, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't see a way back in, and I'm so hurt by this person that I need your heart and your love to reconcile with my grandfather because I can't do it with the heart that I have now. And it was a, an incredibly vulnerable and honest prayer and one that I imagine that he said more than once. And through spectacular events, my friend actually was reconciled back to his grandfather. But I will say that um, in writing this sermon, it brought to mind a few people where I feel that same tug or that conviction to move towards them, but they are scary and they are, frankly, feel a bit dangerous to me. And if, if I'm completely honest, there's some people where I feel wronged by them and I'm like, do they really deserve my grace for them? And so I resonate with my friend in his story. I resonate with Ananias. I, I resonate with Matt Stevenson to some degree. There's that distance. There's that scariness of the other person in question. So I don't say any of this in a vacuum. Um, trust me when I say that, you know, these things... Um, and these stories and these scriptures feel very real for me in this season of my life. As my wife can probably attest, she hears all my venting, so she knows what I'm thinking about. But in any circumstance, you know, I do find myself placing a high value on how can I respond personally in these situations? What is the move that I need to make here? And so really, all I can think of is to pray that prayer that my friend prayed. I know that on paper that I should be like Matt Stevenson. That's a beautiful, ideal story that doesn't happen very often, or at least if it does, we don't hear about it much in the news, where we literally break bread with enemies, or we have this amazing, beautiful conversion story. 
And there's all sorts of reasons for why it just may seem too big or too scary or too unrealistic. But nothing is impossible with God. And if we invite God into those spaces, he works the miracle, it's not us. We just have to listen to that voice that calls us out to go to straight street and to pray for our enemy. So I hope that just even the little bit that I've shared will be enough for you to speak with God, to spend some time in prayer and begin lifting this week, um, not just once but many times, prayers to God about how to move towards people that may seem really scary to you. Maybe it's someone that you've fallen out with. Maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor who for some reason feels unapproachable. But you have that little whisper in your heart that's telling you to go in their direction in some way. Maybe, it, maybe it's a fear to be the hands and feet of Jesus to people who might seem too different or too weird to make worthwhile contact with their contributions to. So this week, pray with me. Pray with me for those people in our lives. Pray for ourselves. Pray that God would be speaking deeply into our hearts. Ask the Holy Spirit where we can be moving and listening and giving and staying faithful when it comes to these situations. Where we have those Ananias barriers, would we lift up our prayers and ask and seek God's help in what the next step should be? My hope and my prayer is that God would break apart those barriers for us today, mine included, and that we would live fully into the vision and the plans that God has for us in our walk with him. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the Sermon Podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.